0: Hi, it's Arjun. So this week, I'd like to dive into some of the big questions for 2023 that I posed in my New Year's Day post. Uh, there are five questions. I think I'm going to do this in a multi-part video series uh, to keep the length manageable. I'll focus on one of the questions in this, uh, in this video. So the five questions I posed, first one was, if oil prices fall in 2023, which is possible if you have global recession, so on and so forth, and returns on capital therefore fall with it would that mean the structural ROCE cycle is over? And in my view, the answer is almost certainly, no, it does not mean that. Uh, And I'm gonna spend the video going into this uh, this specific question this week. Second question I posed was this this question of, if you're in an environment, and I think we will be, where returns on capital, dividends are preferred over growth, does it make more sense for EMPs to be diversified, actually, versus what has been the kind of preferred pure play business model uh, that we've seen over the previous period where oftentimes investors preferred growth uh, without focusing as much on dividends and returns. And I, I think there will be a shift. It doesn't mean one size fits all, and this is the answer for every com- company. I'm not saying that. But, but I think this notion of how do you diversify, um, and, and maybe the related third question, how do you diversify and add duration to your ability to generate good returns? How do you do that without upsetting investors? There's no question investors generally do not like they absolutely do not like diversifying transactions. Uh, on the other hand, I think when you look at companies in, let's just say, actually, even over the last century, who have been able to sustain advantaged returns through the ups and downs, it has is, it is almost always been diversified companies. So I'm, This is very worthy of its own, probably, report series and discussion and videos. Uh, but this is one of the big questions I want to pose for 2023. This, this fourth one I'll probably come back to next week, which is Tesla's had a, a major valuation correction. The, the bubble is deflating, not just in Tesla, but in a whole bunch of different companies. And as it relates to energy, the question is when you lose, when your bubble leader loses its huge valuation advantage, are you gonna still have the same level of growth p- plans? In this case for EV sales, not just for Tesla, but for the broader sector and that has implications for how investors perceive the durability of say long-term oil demand. Uh, it, it has implications for terminal value for traditional energy companies. Again, I'll, I'll dive into this uh, most likely next week. Uh, the, the final question is really coming back to this issue of ESG 2.0, what makes sense? What are all the things that don't make sense? And in that latter bucket, what is going on with the, Eurofina- the European financial companies is, is simply um, nothing I support. I find it to be pure insanity. HSBC now, previously Munich Re, saying they're gonna get out of financing new oil and gas investments. It is absolutely absurd. Uh, on the other hand, um, they're doing what they're doing. It's worthy of a discussion. I'll come back to that as well you know, later this spring sometime. So let me, let me focus this week on this first question of oil volatility and returns on capital. So I, I wanna start with lessons that I learned, that we learned from the last super-cycle uh, super area, the super-spike period, as I called it, Uh, It's the namesake for this publication, 2002 to 2014, an overall robust period for energy prices. This is one of my favorite graphs. It is, I think you can see my cursor now. It is returns on capital on the y-axis versus oil prices. This is uh, WTI oil on the x-axis. And I'll I'll just kind of divide this into three distinct periods. The first was the best period, 2002 to 2006, up oil, up returns on capital. Uh, That's... That's the dream. Now, in this era, this prior era, it was a smoother cycle. Yes, there was some choppiness if you lived through this on a daily, weekly, or, or, or monthly, quarterly basis. But on an annual basis, it was generally up oil, up returns. But that peaked in 2006. Uh, that was the high point of that entire 14-year era. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, my biggest regret is this 2006 to 2008 period, I'll make sure you can still see the cursor, yeah. Uh, oil was up $35 a barrel, $35. And returns on capital fell 5%. Now, this level of returns mid to upper teens is still kind of a good number. That's, I think, how I excused it. Um, but that's a real warning sign. It's not like oil was up 5 bucks and returns fell a little bit. Oil was up $35 a barrel and returns on capital fell. A huge warning sign. And you really saw that most meaningfully play out in this third kind of line I want to show, which is 2012 to 2014. oil environment, almost the same returns on capital as we had in 2002 at $25 oil. Think about that. Oil prices quadrupled. If we were in 2002 and we said we're going to $100 a barrel, (laughs) and I told you returns on capital are going to be little changed. Even I, you know, I'm I'm a believer that returns do normalize. I wouldn't have thought they could have normalized to that degree. The cycle clearly had long since. It ended in 2006 from a profitability standpoint. In terms of peak uh, S&P weightings, that was 2008 and 2010 or 11. We had kind of double tops. Uh, but from a, from a profitability standpoint, it peaked in 06 and 012 and 014. Still $100 oil, but disastrous, in my opinion, returns. There's a lot of lessons in there about trying to understand this relationship between returns and oil prices. And are you improving, worsening in line? So I'd like to shift to the current period now to try and look at uh, some real-time indicators. So this is quarterly data points from, um, the, well, the gray dots are quarterly data points from 2015 to 2019, kind of the second half of the bust period. And you can see the green dots here are the more recent quarters, the better period, and what I think is the start of the new up cycle. Uh, you know, what I think a couple sort of interesting points here, yes, oil is up, and yes, returns on capital are up. So that's at least... That's a good sign. They're not worsening <laughs> like, like happened in 08 and in 2012. Up oil prices, up returns, but they're actually above the regression line. There's been a structural improvement, at least here at the start of the cycle, that relative to the level of oil prices, returns on capital are doing better. Some people say there's been a bunch of write-offs. Yes, there have. I, I'll post it in a future graph. If you adjust for write-offs, the, the dots come down a little bit, but not materially so. And ultimately, what matters is if all this was was write-offs, you would not be able to sustain this. You would regress back towards the old regression line, and it'll be something to watch. Um, the, the, I use reported numbers. So something like first quarter of 2022, there were some write-offs related to Russia. There will be noisiness on a short-term basis. But what I will be looking to do is to really understand, let's just say in 2023, we have a deep global recession. It's not my call. I don't, I don't publicly forecast oil prices anymore or, or, or these kinds of things. It's a, this is a commentary on long-term trends. But well, let's just say we have $60 oil. It'll make a huge difference if returns on capital are still double-digit versus if you start falling towards break-even or lower profitability. Something to watch. I, I will say the opposite is also going to be true. Maybe we're a coiled spring right now. Without inventory, spare capacity, China reopening, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Maybe we don't have recession. Maybe we have well over $100 oil. It will, in that case, also be important to see that returns are improving with the higher oil prices is going to be a key. I'll keep coming back to this graph in this video. I think it's very important to monitor conditions. One of the things that kind of gives me confidence that at least at this current in time, meaning this year, 2023, maybe next year as well, CapEx is still much closer to trough than it is to even mid cycle or peak. So this gray line, is in real terms, the CapEx from 2002 to 2014, the green line is the current era. Uh, and you can see it's tracking almost one for one. Now, <clears throat> demand is up 25%, so pretty notable that despite a 25% increase in oil demand from low 80s, millions of barrels per day 20 years ago to about 100 million barrels a day today, CapEx is about the same. This current level of CapEx is implying a 60% reduction in future demand. There's, in my opinion, you can be the biggest bear on oil. You can be the biggest climate hawk. There's no chance for having a 60% decline in oil demand. Now, these things are cyclical, so you wouldn't expect CapEx to be all the way back up here. But at the same time, it's not back up there. Now, there's some pushbacks that I've received on whether we really, either need to or will get CapEx back up to these levels. One of the pushbacks is unit costs are lower. That's always true. That tends to be pro cyclical. So I, I don't put as much weight on that pushback. The other, I think, better pushback I've gotten has been that there's going to be a mix shift. We're not going to do deep water and Arctic and all these kind of things and that if more of the future production comes from, say, Saudi, UAE, Kuwait, then perhaps future unit costs can actually be lower. Um, I, I think we'll see that clearly would add geopolitical risk premium to a greater degree than it already is into oil prices. Um, if, if this is, by the way, Western oil companies, in a universe of 75 to 80. If, if they're not going to increase their CapEx, then I feel a lot better that returns on capital are going to be um, staying above the regression line. So we'll, we'll come back to this CapEx question in a future video. But I did want to just quickly highlight, you, you don't, the cycle does not peak a trough CapEx. You need to go through the cycle. And even if there are reasons for why CapEx won't rise as much this time, um, that probably bodes well for returns on capital. A lot of super spike has emphasized this point of you should expect a lot of volatility. We're not like we were in the super spike era where everybody was trying to grow supply and demand was booming because of China and EMs. You're almost in the exact opposite scenario in the sense of You have no spare capacity inventories or cushion in the system. That's throughout energy commodities. You have no desire to grow supply. Traditional investors don't want it. ESG investors don't want it. Western world politicians, for whatever reason, don't want it. Uh, And so you're seeing a real restraint, as you saw in the previous graph on CapEx. But in a world where you don't have cushion and you don't have a desired supply growth, you are going to have to... Force demand out of the system through demand destruction pricing. And that means volatility. The thing is, though, when you get to whatever demand destruction is, it's going to vary. I've said all this before. Buy commodity, depending on how robust the underlying economic conditions are. It could be a higher or lower price every time you go through this. But you get a correction in, in, in demand. You, you do. You destroy demand. And you get a, a weakening, a loosening of conditions, as we've seen here towards the second half of 2022 into the start of 20. Some of that's weather, some of it's China shutdowns, but some of it's the reaction to very high prices last summer and last spring. It's a one standard deviation move in oil on a quarterly basis, which I think is a relevant investor time frame. It's gonna be about $20 a barrel. That's one standard deviation. And you, of course, can have two and three standard deviation moves. So if your centering point, let's just say, is $90 a barrel. A one standard deviation move means in any quarter, You can have 70 or 110. That's just one standard deviation. You can obviously have two and three standard deviation moves and you should expect that. So the question then is, if you're going to have all this volatility, isn't that bad for traditional equities? And I, I reject, I reject that premise. I accept the notion that there has historically been an inverse correlation between volatility and valuation. Absolutely true. But, but I do think the paradigm matters. And, and maybe I'll just expand on it in this, what I think is the last graph. It's that same chart of quarterly returns uh, on capital versus oil prices. If this line is shifted up, and if you take $90 as a setting point, you can take a different setting point, use whatever you want. This is just, I've just explained in a graph here. Let's say we have a two standard deviation move down and we have $50 oil. It makes a huge difference if your trough return on capital is going to be six, seven, or eight percent, or maybe even ten percent, versus you know losing billions of dollars as we've done and passed down. It's like I, mean, I, I actually took COVID out of here to clean up the graph a little bit. <laughs> you, you clearly could have worse outcomes than this one. Sorry for for that. Um, and, and similarly, if you go up, do we continue? So if your centering point is a twenty percent return on capital. That's very different. That's very different than when you're centering points a 5% return on capital as it was for the previous five years. And so, yes, all else equal investors favor smoother environments over more volatile environments. But, but, but you just can't say that is the be all and when I'm done with the analysis. Oh, it's more volatile. So valuations will never pick up. Not true. If you have a 20% return on capital as your centering point, that is hugely different than if your centering point is 5%. And if your trough return, which is what I think is most relevant, turns out to be a a 5, 6, 7, 8% return on capital, either for the sectors, I think it will be for the foreseeable future, or the top quartile of companies, which is always what I care most about, who is best in class. How do you stay, you know, I think you're gonna, uh, there is scope here for pretty significant valuation improvement as investors get their arms wrapped around the idea that structural profitability, if not for the sector, for the foreseeable future, or for the best-in-class companies, as I think will be most true over the longest period of time, as as people gain confidence that are structurally better, has some pretty important valuation ramifications. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. Uh, This week, I had the great pleasure of joining my friend, Former partner and colleague Jeff Curry in Miami to help kick off the Goldman Sachs Global Energy Conference, and what was the return of the Jeff and Arjun show? We, Jeff and I, I think, both had a blast up there, and we had a, a good time going out to, uh, to to dinner with some old friends the night before, I, I, and we were in South Beach. A um, couple things here: I've not actually been to South Beach Beach in a while. That, that that's a place I gotta spend more time in. It was um, it, it blew me away, and to see so much of actually the investment community down there. Uh, including energy folks and other market participants. Pretty exciting times, and I, 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 <laughs> I get the appeal. I think the other point I just wanna make is, you know, Jeff and I grew up together at Goldman uh, we were probably both vice presidents, managing directors, partners together, and our career progressed most meaningfully over that super spike era. And I think you know, we had different clients. Jeff was focused on commodities, I was focused on equities, I was more, I was exclusively focused on traditional energy equities and some clean energy. Jeff um, has much uh, broader perspectives across the commodities complex. But when it came to the oil forecast specifically, which both of us independently and together became probably best known for, uh, we had to have a lot of really healthy discussion and debate. And so we'd clash. But that clash, I think, created, uh, you know, I think some very market relevant research. And, and it, was, it was a really exciting and important collaboration. I believe we brought out the best in each other. We were able to push each other, adjust one's views. Again, I came at it more from the equity analysis side of things, Jeff more from the commodity side. And I have to tell you, I do miss that. It is a hard thing to replicate later on in your career. And as much fun as Jeff and I had, and it'd be great to do more of these things, we, we cannot replicate, and nor does it make sense to, the regular road shows we used to do you know, 15 years ago. Um, the, the thing is, how do you, how do you replicate the kind of, um, the creative process, the analytical process where you end up having impactful calls, not always right <laughs> as Jeff and I, I think with both attest. sometimes, if not many times wrong, but it was really just a phenomenal working collaboration. And, um, I, I miss it. Um, it was great to be with everyone at Goldman. To be with all of, so many of my former clients and colleagues, and uh, I think it was a terrific conference. And maybe more on some takeaways in, in future videos. Thank you.